Welcome back to a Clubfoot Mom podcast. I'm your host and fellow Clubfoot Mom, Maureen Hoff. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nitsa Rodriguez, an adult and pediatric foot and ankle specialist at the Southern California Foot and Ankle Specialist Clinic and a PIA Ponsetti Club certified clubfoot doctor. Dr. Rodriguez is a well-known clubfoot doctor in the community who has a reputation of being very patient-focused and also had the opportunity to train with Dr. Ponsetti himself prior to his death. In this episode, we run the gamut of clubfoot conversation topics, everything from social media, parent education, and to the future of clubfoot treatment and everything in between. Dr. Rodriguez tells us about what drew her to clubfoot treatment and why she is so passionate about working with the population. So let's jump in. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rodriguez. I'm so thrilled to have you here as a guest and just thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Um, I could say the same and, you know, I'm so, so sorry. It's taken so long. Um, I have so much uh, admiration for, for parents that are trying to just share knowledge with other parents and um, I'm, I'm happy I can be here. No, oh, I'm so just happy that we actually made it work. I mean, <laughs> that seems to be the way it goes sometimes with these podcasts. It's just time after time, just have to keep rescheduling till we make it happen. So I appreciate your patience and I'm happy for everybody who's going to be able to listen today. So let's just jump in. Okay. So let's let's start at the very beginning. How did you even become interested in treating clubfoot? I think that's a really long question, but um, I became a foot and ankle specialist because of my own journey. I have flat feet, which isn't the same as clubfoot, but um, it is something that you know there is no treatment for per se, and um, and. And I'm I'm fortunate that I have a flat foot that I manage, but I do fall in the category that I can't wear exactly every type of shoe and every type of situation. So um, I I had worn inserts when I was a child, and I danced my whole life. So I was um, I visited pediatric orthopedists and podiatrists, you know, foot and ankle specialists my whole life, mm-hmm. and um, so I had a really great relationship with one person that treated me and they kind of inspired me to go into foot and ankle. And, um, once I learned about that, I was at UC Davis when, um, I kind of learned about clubfoot. There was this, this table that had medical missions and, um, it was in Central America because I'm originally from Nicaragua. And so I remember seeing people that lived with uh, uncorrected clubfoot. And um, and I just, you know, fell in love with the thought of changing someone's life. I really was not informed with the correct treatment plan. At that time, I definitely thought I would be, you know, going on medical missions and doing all these surgical treatments on patients. But that's sort of where I learned about it. I had no idea about Ponsetti or anything, but I, I knew that's what I wanted to treat. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I went to school and then during school is actually when I became aware of, wow, you know, these people that had surgery 
are coming in with arthritis and pain and, and it isn't this fixable thing that even though the foot might look really great and um, in an x-ray and um, they might have a pretty decent gait pattern or the way that they walk, they still are having pain and complaints. And so I started to research a little bit more and then I became aware of Ponsetti and and I became sort of obsessed with working with him and um, and I was really, really fortunate that when I was in residency, I actually trained at Kaiser in the mm -hmm. Bay Area. Mm. And when I was in residency, my residency director had family that lived in Iowa. And mm. so he made it happen for me. And um, Dr. Williams, he was amazing. And he, um, I was able to go out for a month while I was a resident and train with Dr. Ponsetti. And um, and then I went back every year as a resident because at the at the time where I um, was at the Kaiser, there was actually no one that could treat Cubfoot and at that particular location. So so I actually got to treat during my residency Cubfoot after coming back from Iowa. Wow, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, it was I, at the time I didn't realize how formative and mm -hmm. fortunate. I was. It was just, you know, I, I really wanted to do it and I was so grateful. And it wasn't until he passed away that I could really reflect on, wow, what an amazing experience I had. Um, mm -hmm. It was it was great. So when you went out there to train with him, was it at the beginning of when people were starting to adopt the Ponsetti method or were people still really? No, no, I, no, I, I went in 2006. So okay. it was already considered pretty strongly close to the gold standard of okay. club, but not everyone had the appropriate training for it. Mm -hmm. If that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, definitely in my, in my, training it was understood that the Ponsetti method was what was going to yield the better results mm. so I I didn't I didn't have any of my training involve you know posterior medial releases or anything of that nature um because there was already the Ponsetti method happening at one of the other Kaiser locations by another doctor that also worked with Dr. Ponsetti and so I was very fortunate that that was you know, my, my learning involved the Ponsetti method. I know nothing, but that's what I know, you know, to do and what I believe is, um, appropriate. Um, I have adopted other parts of, you know, um, I do believe in, in, in modifying the Ponsetti method and we could talk about it a little bit more later, but, um, as I see these patients when they're older, I, I do believe that we need strengthening as a huge part of the club journey. And so I'm really this kind of decade in my life, I think I'm looking at how can I improve even on what we have? I mean, we have an amazing treatment plan, but mm -hmm. we don't have a cure, obviously. And we still have patients that have relapses and we still we still have like weakness when you compare like one foot to another foot in the unilateral patients. And I do believe um, this is going to sound maybe not too popular to some of the people, but I do believe there's some, um, there is something 
about the French method that I really sits well with me as far mm -hmm. as maintenance of clubfoot. I, I, I'm not the only one. This is not an original thought. I know there's people out there that are talking about like the third way or a hybrid method. And I do believe, I do believe that is going to be the future if we look mm -hmm. at research because of the just inherent weakness that you have with the, with the, just anatomy, the anatomical issues that we see, um, how the muscle mass is smaller. And so being able to really work with uh, strengthening, I think, is going to be very key, not just to uh, relapse, but also to uh, function. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't honestly know a lot about the French method, other than the fact that our PT here was trained in the French method. And he's the one that we do all of our um, like follow-ups with at this point, um, just because he's local and we love him. But it's an interesting thing because he will talk a lot about that. And I do hear from other people about how does the strengthening, the physical therapy, the, you know, how does that all play into the club foot treatment overall, right? If our goal is to have functional, mobile, strong, pain-free feet for our kids, um, it seems crazy to me that we're just like done at five with boots and bar. And it's like, okay, we're done. We're like, we just move on. And I mean, that's always in my head now because my cutie's coming up to five pretty soon. <laughs> the idea that she could just be done and it's like, okay, now we're done forever seems very... Um, foreign to me considering we've had to have daily treatment since she was 13 days old right and i and i think that of course dr dobbs talks about you know how heterogeneous clubfoot is mm -hmm. and that is so true obviously anyone that's been treating clubfoot as long as he has or um has a lot of experience with seeing the different club feet there's so many there's so much nuance within clubfoot and i i didn't really appreciate it until i completely specialized in it and which mm -hmm. now that's all i see so i actually trained in foot and ankle surgery surgery for you know adults and children but I knew even when residency that I you know I would never do some of these procedures because I just really wanted to focus only on clubfoot and then within clubfoot I've you know I think my specialty is that 80 percent um where the 80 percent that is, it occurs in isolation um mm -hmm. which you know we like to call isolated clubfoot or, you know, some people will say idiopathic clubfoot. I think, you know, doc, Dr. Dobbs has worked really hard at trying to make a distinction. And even myself, I had a hard time kind of distinguishing um, between, you know, the the isolated clubfoot and the complex clubfoot and atypical. And, um, and now I think we understand like when I was in 2006 when I had gone out to Iowa it was kind of when that first paper came out and the you know atypical and complex were kind of grouped together because the treatment is the same for both but now we with more time and experience and more people coming together we really understand that there is 
isolated clubfoot, which for anyone who's listening that doesn't know what that means, that means that the clubfoot occurs in isolation, meaning the that is all that medically is going on with your child as far as in relation to the clubfoot. Of course, you can have like you could have eyesight problems and things like that. That, are, that doesn't mean you don't have another medical condition, but there's no association neurologically mm. with the club foot. And then that's about 80%. And then you have the 20% that are what we call now atypical. And those atypical club feet have other neurological things. Mm-hmm. In the isolated group, you can have issues with casting, that create now a complex club foot. And that's that's where it gets complicated because you can also have, you know, you can also have atypical club feet that have difficulties with casting. And so people get kind of confused. Even myself, I got confused. But I think it's important to make that distinction because the treatment plan is different and the scope of practice and the amount of you know, providers involved becomes more when we're looking at the atypical club foot. Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the things that I've also, it's been hard for me to kind of wrap my head around is that difference between all of the different language and associated with club foot. Like, you know, my daughter is isolated, so idiopathic, but it's this idea that if we're all lumped into the same group, then we're all confused when things don't go exactly as it planned, right? That's part of this like Ponsetti method, which the more work that I do, I, it's for me individualizing that. Like what you, it's not a one size fits all because not every club foot is the same. And so how do we take a general method and individualize it for each patient that we're seeing as opposed to, you know, and as a parent too, like taking that information and go, okay, so my treatment isn't exactly the same as this person next to me or this person in the community, but that doesn't mean that that, that there's something off with it or, or does it like it's hard for parents to navigate that too, because you hear all these things and you think this is the only way it can be done. And then you get really confused when you're like, wait, my provider is saying something different. Does that mean there's something wrong with the provider? Does that mean there's something wrong with my child? Does it, so it gets real confusing. It does. Yeah. And it does. And, and I, you know, I, I sympathize and empathize with parents because I too have a child that has an extra something going on. And, um, I, you know, my, our son was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder when he was five Mm -hmm. and, um, it's a journey. I mean, it was appropriately coined that term by that mom because Mm -hmm. it is a journey that you go on as a parent. And, you know, I, think the important part is to get enough information and then step away from it right so there is something about being too informed and too into you know not too informed sorry I mean too too concerned about your treatment I feel that you want you want to you want to have as much education as you can about clubfoot you want to get really, I think as a parent, 
you want to have the most up-to-date information. Um, you want to feel really good about what what it is, what does it mean, what, how does that affect you, how will it affect your family, what the treatment plan involves and which way you want to go, what kind of brace you want to you know, use, uh, what, what level of involvement you want the provider to have in your, in your child's life. And then once you find that person and you find the provider, then you, you kind of have to, I feel like you have to, you have to believe in the provider. You know, you have to believe in their treatment plan. And if you have a question, I believe the provider should be okay with you going to get a second opinion. I, I am always sending people to get second opinions. I have no problem with it. I don't take a personal. I, I welcome another opinion. It doesn't mean that it's going to change my opinion, but it is, it is called an opinion for that reason because mm -hmm. it is not the law. And um, I don't have a magic ball to tell you exactly what is going to happen. So I believe the more informed you are and the more um, information you have and once you're comfortable then you're comfortable and you just move on to doing the treatment plan and going about life not really questioning every single thing that happens because it's just exhausting yeah and I think that's something we touch on all the time is the trust in the provider that you have right. and the ability for your providers to answer the questions that you have without, um, I want to say ego, but not, not necessarily, but with this ability to go, parents aren't questioning because we're questioning your, you know, overall knowledge, which I've run into with doctors in the past of like, I'm just trying to educate myself so I know better. So when I'm asking you questions, it's not because I'm questioning you. I'm questioning so that I can educate myself on the process. But sometimes it feels um, it feels tricky as a parent because you don't want to cross boundaries and act like you know more because you don't. Like I don't right, I know right. more than yeah, you about foot treatment. But at the same time, I have to be able to step in and advocate for my kid because you're not at home with my kid every single right. day. Right. So it has to be a relationship between the doctor and the parent where you guys are reciprocal in the way where you're giving and taking information. And so if you don't, one of the things I run into with parents is they're not, they're too afraid to tell their doctors what's right. going on at home, right? right? Because they don't want to feel like a failure or they don't want... Um, or they don't want to be a burden. And so they're like, I'm not going to tell them what's happening. And then I hear from every, every doctor I've ever had on this podcast is like, please come to me with your questions. I <laughs> don't want you struggling alone at home. So it's that disconnect between parents and going like, but I don't want to bother anybody. And right. it's like, but they don't want you struggling alone at home either. So how do we bridge that gap? So to speak? Yeah, I, I agree. And I also think I think um, it's a challenging thing, not just in, in club, but this is just medicine in general, um, is being able to to have those open lines of communication with um, your patient or in club, but it, it's really, you know, I always tell parents, um, especially when when I have the initial 
you know, when I have the initial visits with some second opinions and I might differ from the opinion prior to that, right? In the end, you know, I'm going to have a lovely conversation with anyone. I can answer all the questions to the best of my ability. Um, but in the end, my patient is, is the baby. <laughs> and, um, and, and I can't forget that. And, I have to always advocate for what I think is the best for the baby, mm -hmm. even if maybe we, the parents and I don't always agree on what maybe next steps will be. Um, but I can still, I, I, I have so many patients and I may not agree with everything, but we still have very respectful relationships. And I'll say that I'm so grateful some parents challenged me because it's changed my practice. You know, if, I, if I'm not challenged to think about why I'm prescribing X, Y, and Z or doing, and I'm not open and receptive to what the parents are telling me at home, then I'm not taking, I'm not really looking at evidence-based medicine. You know, I'm not really looking and seeing, is it what I, what I think is that actually being able to translate into these patients' families. And that's where I think like physical therapy component is really difficult. Even the French method is that I think it's really great, but the, as a treatment plan, it, it just can't be applied across like patients. I understand parents do not have an unlimited, undivided time to devote to a child. Many people have to go to work. They have other children. Like I understand that. And so that is the challenge. Um, also our, our, our medical system isn't set up and doesn't really pay us as providers for all this extra time. And so I'm very careful to tell parents when they say, you know, I went somewhere else and they didn't spend the time. I try to tell them, you know, these are really busy practices and, um, and it's, it's unfortunately the medical system is not it's not made to have these lovely dis time to have this long discussion with parents. And so, um, you know, parents will feel rushed because the next patient's right there and they're, you know, you're being pushed. So I think educating yourself and being able to come to the appointment with your questions and, um, and also just having access and not feeling scared to make that phone call after or send that email and say, Hey, I really, I really understand this. And then, it, and then stepping away and realizing if someone has a problem with a question, it probably has nothing to do with you as mm. a parent. Um, it has more to do with, um, the provider and 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 most providers are going to be more than willing to answer questions because mm -hmm. all the questions are very similar. I mean, I, 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 it's not you haven't asked a question that hasn't been asked before usually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the messages that parents need to hear is like it might feel like you're struggling with something in isolation, but the reality is if you've had that question, someone else has had it before you and the doctor is going to, um, have resources for you, right? It's to their extent. And that's part of what this is. And what I try to do is help. I see myself as trying to help everybody 
find different resources through different information channels. You know, for doctors, it can't just be that doctors are on call 24-7 and are available to answer every single question that you have, because that's just not realistic. Right, and And it's also not, um, you can't sustain that, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And so how do we then create more of a comprehensive education system for parents that providers can then send parents to that's not, um, you know, kind of lifting all boats as opposed to saying, oh, well, you know, it's easy to go. Well, my doctor doesn't have enough time for me. But the reality is so much more complex than that. So how do we then help the parents who their provider maybe just doesn't have that same availability to be able to answer every question. Where can we, you know, give them outside resources to be able to connect with people? Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I, I really believe in the power of um, community mm-hmm. and and I in in a real face to face community, you know, yeah. not, not just um, social media, which I, I I I'm not saying social media isn't powerful, but I do believe in uh, connecting my patients, and mm-hmm. there is something to be said in learning from another parent and seeing their their journey and seeing another child that is a couple years ahead or a decade ahead, and just. It's it's really important to to yeah. make that connection with other families because they're living this similar journey that you are, and in many ways they have a lot of the answers more so than a provider, mm-hmm. unless the provider has a child that has clubfoot or had clubfoot. Then, um, but I you know I didn't put boots and bar every night. I didn't do all the things. I didn't buy the newest car seat. And I don't know the wrap that you wrap your baby in. And I don't know all those things because my child's 10 and I also didn't have a brace. So um, I think those are just as important questions to, to have. And that's why I really believe in connecting families together and having real interactions and real relationships. Um, because there's so many aspects that parenting, it does change parenting. I mean, it, as much as I, I tell parents, you will, you will have this child and they will do all the things that you envisioned they were going to do in most cases. And it's particularly in the isolated club foot. Um, it is going to be different. You know, you didn't imagine you were going to have this brace and all this other stuff going on, but I would say the majority of my parents, think the child is doing all the things that they imagine their child would do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's such a good point that I think social media has its place, but it also has its limits. And I think that being able to find real connection with people that you trust to like other parents that you are kind of on the same wavelength as you, whether they're you know, two years ahead of you or right at the same stage. Uh, For me, that was like such a lifeline. I just met two friends and that was via social media, right? Like I wouldn't have met them otherwise, but our relationship wasn't built on our online connection. It was built on our shared communication throughout the process, right? Um, And that relationship building as opposed to 
putting your question out. It was always so scary to me to put my question out into the ether and have like 50 different people respond differently to it and not know any of the people who are actually responding to me. Yeah. Um, so and that, I, I think it's, it's hard too, because when you, when you look at social media, you know, there's so much, like we talked about how, how heterogeneous Clubfoot is. And so, you know, you put a question out there and, um, I recently had this experience uh, from one of my patients put a question out there and someone came up with a diagnosis for them that, um, they had, and it really spiraled this parent right into, into anxiety and all the stuff. And, and, and when the, when you put a question out there and someone gives you a lifeline and they're correct, it's so yeah. wonderful. But okay. when it's not correct, you just go on this like huge yeah. circle. And so I always say, when you have a question, go to your doctor first mm-hmm. and then, or your provider or whoever it is. And then if you still aren't comfortable or don't feel, sometimes they're absolutely right. They're, they're yeah. 100% right. I, a lot of the second opinions that come to me, I agree. Yes, I agree. But maybe I say it in a different way or I, or we have a different connection. And so I can just answer the questions or remember the first time you go into that first appointment, you don't ha- you're just told whatever it is. Then you yeah. go home and now you have all these questions. So the second time you come around, now you have more information and you have a more focused view about what your questions are. So mm-hmm. I, I would say just never be afraid to ask more than one person. Um, and then once you get a satisfied, you know, a satisfying answer, then just move on with the treatment plan, move on with your life. And just that circle of staying in that doubt is really hard. And, um, and, I, and I think, you know, there's so much that has to happen already with treatment that just finding what the treatment plan is and moving forward is important. Yeah. I mean, I think my rule of thumb is similar to that of like, if, you, if you're asking for like, what's the best baby carrier... Social media is great for that, right? Like to be able to say what's, you know, or where did you guys buy, you know, your leg warmers or things like that. But if it's a medical question where you're asking something that is related to the treatment plan, but not just assisting that you need to go to your doctor first because the people on um, the community will do the best that they can, but it's not. You know, and then, like you said, if you're not satisfied with the response that you've gotten, then we can start to outsource that out. But so frequently you see in these social media platforms and the groups, things that, you know, that it gets really tricky to try to say, does my kid's foot look corrected through a picture to yeah, a mom's right. it's a, it's a static picture? I mean, you really, exactly. there's so yeah. much that needs to happen um, to like to look at an adequate correction you're not just looking at the position of the foot you're ranging the foot you're testing the foot you're looking I mean there's neurological function there's a lot, there's, there's a lot and if you're talking about an older child you're you're hopefully having them walk a pattern evaluating um so there's a lot that goes into to making that dis- decision as to yeah. whether something's um correct or not. Yeah. And like you said, it can, it can either be great or it can really just spiral you. Right. So you get on and you're like anxiously post something and then 
is it really going to help your anxiety to have five, you know, (laughs) five to 10 responses of things that, you know, so that's the part where I just always tell people like, just think about stuff before you post it on the big groups and think like, is this a question that's good for the group? Or is this a question that I should be asking somebody else about that's not really appropriate for these large platforms? Because these groups are big. Some of them are have a lot of people in them and I'm not anti them by any means, but I also think it's just an interesting road to walk for parents to try to figure out what information is relevant and applicable to them and their child because everybody's different. Right. And it can also show a very narrow perspective because, you know, for all patients that post, there's so many patients that never will post that aren't part of this social media that even if they are, they're silently never going to say everything was really great. It went smooth because you're just not that person to go on and say everything was great. One, because there is a little bit of like, well, as soon as I say it, it's going to go downhill Two, It's just not popular to, to say the good. And so I think sometimes the, 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 difficult and complicated cases can stick out more when the majority of us are seeing clubfoot being treated um, and, and the treatment is smooth and there's no blisters and their children are doing good. You know, that's the majority of what we see. But it's not to say, I'm also really careful in that, yes, there are blisters. Yes, there is that atypical club foot that's going to be more complicated. Um, But when you're a new mom, you don't even know that there's a distinction, or dad, um, or person, you don't even know that there's a distinction between the two groups. And so just getting educated prenatally, I think, with a provider is really great I think getting out and not everyone has that option because they may not have the ultrasound. Right. But if you do have the ultrasound, I think especially now with um, COVID has opened up these zoom appointments and FaceTime appointments, which I think is wonderful way to meet providers and kind of get your questions out and, um, and then just kind of clear your head and be able to move forward with what you feel comfortable with and who you feel comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's opened up that, especially because so many of us have to travel a decent amount of time to get to our providers, right. that that ability to have those questions answered or those virtual appointments are really, I think, have been a real positive come out from Clubfoot, especially about questions, that sort of thing. I mean, in my personal opinion, I don't think there's a, and there's nothing better than having hands on feet, you know, for over hundred percent, hundred percent, like the follow up aspect of it. But especially for those prenatal converse, conversations where you're trying to um, discern what doctor is a good fit for you and get your questions answers and educate yourself, like that's a really great opportunity for you to be able to get some information that's geared from that as opposed to like, you know, Google searches, which can really be overwhelming. 100%. And and, exactly. It's, uh, we're really fortunate in this time and age because of that and technology. So you talked a little, I want to hear more from you about where you think clubfoot treatment can continue to evolve in the future. 
Um, so, you know, I do think we're going to, I mean, if we start from just prenatally, I think we're going to get better at, um, and when I say we, it's not me in particular, but the medical community is going to get better at diagnosing so that uh, people will know ahead of time. So I think, I, I think that will be um, important as well as any of the other ancillary or associated conditions. Um, I think uh, we know the the Ponsetti method and I think more and more providers will hopefully start to hone in on their um, treatment of that and that is now considered sort of the gold standard. But I, you know, it, over the last, I would say, three years it's been really covid has has really changed my perspective because so many of my parents um you know they just couldn't come to clinic or there was i i have had less follow-ups because of covid or what's happened and um i did see some children, you know, not brace or maybe lose some flexibility. And it's really sort of opened up my eyes to, to the strength aspect and also looking at bracing. I think, I mean, when I was in Iowa, Ponsetti was still extending the age of bracing. You know, he was still kind of extending that and really questioning like how long do we brace and that still is not it's not an answered question in my opinion you know maybe someone else feels differently um but and and also just what is what are we doing with bracing what patient population benefits because i, I don't think every single patient needs to brace indefinitely i don't think every single patient needs to brace extended but i would say that the majority of patients um benefit from you know bracing from four to six and i think the thing that i'm ex that i'm really looking at now is the strengthening component i think that is something i didn't learn in um the quote unquote, it's not part of the Ponsetti method. And um, in fact, I almost felt that um, I was over prescribing physical therapy because I would, you know, give physical therapy prescriptions and often get, um, they don't need it, or they would get a second opinion and come back and say, they don't feel like they need it. And it did shine me away from my original um, thought, you know, I was like, well, maybe I'm, I'm being a little off on it, but over the years I've had so many patients and I, most of my patients will tell you, I, I actually have them walk. I actually record them walking. I have so much footage and years of experience and watching them. And as, as I've stayed in one location, so this is what's really important too, is us doctors have lives and we move and, and that does alter our, our ability to follow our patients long term. And so um, at now being in SoCal, because I've been treating Clefa for a long time, so some of my patients are in the Bay Area and they're teenagers, but I can't follow every single one. And so being able to stay, which was the validity of Dr. Ponsetti, was that he stayed in one place and the, his patients stayed in one place, so he was able to follow them even into adulthood, which isn't always the case. 
because I think we need to look at not just what these children are looking like from zero to five. We really need to be looking at what are they looking at as an adult. And I think that's where my specialty is really was really powerful insight for me because I came into this having treated adults before I ever touched a child. I was treating adult clubfoot. And so I think that there's an importance and almost a responsibility of looking at patients and seeing and doing a little bit more research on what do they look like because it's been typically my experience that 20, 30 years, 40 years, that age bracket is going to be a very crucial age bracket to look at because resiliency is so high in little children that when you're comparing them, even, even if you're comparing like babies and you put, you put a baby in physical therapy, depending on the physical therapist, there's not much that they're going to say the baby is doing. But as you're starting to now get into the milestones and as they're starting to stand and then they're going upstairs and then they're hopping and then all these other extra tasks, if you look at unilateral club foot, meaning just one side, you are going to see a difference. No matter how good the treatment, it doesn't matter who corrected that club foot, you are going to see a difference because there's an anatomical difference in the musculature. And also, I believe, this is where I think the research is going to come, and, you know, I believe there is going to be some importance in especially in the unilateral cases, but obviously in the bilateral cases too. But in the unilateral cases, I find that there's a lot of accommodation that occurs with the non-club foot. So, and it also is further complicated by bilaterality, which means like how, like, does that patient have a right club foot and also favor the right side? Or do they have a left club foot? And this is very nuanced, I understand. But I can see that children, when they are hopping in unilateral cases, mm-hmm. I have not had one club foot, and I'm sure maybe someone's going to disagree, um, but usually, typically, on their non-club foot, they're hopping a lot sooner, quicker, and more efficient, even if that side is not their favorite side. Say they kick on the right and they have a left club, but they still are stronger. To me, that says there's an inherent weakness. And I believe that if we work on it as an infant, because some of this is, you know, neural pathways and motor mapping that occurs. And so I believe that if we can help them when they're young and help them really feel confident in that other limb and sort of help with these accommodations that are occurring, then of course it's never going to be exactly the same because we can't change anatomy but what we're worried about here is more function and I believe that um that the more that we can work on it when they're younger the stronger they're going to be and the better function we will see long term and um obviously that's something that I'm super interested in I I don't know of any really um any research that's out there that has been comparing one method, you know, cause it's very complicated to take one patient population and do, do this treatment plan and then take another population, do the two and compare it. So it's, it's really hard to prove in research, but from my, from what I've seen in my clinic, 
the more that I've been prescribing physical therapy and also just parents doing exercises and being just even more aware of it, having children go up and down the stairs with, you know, what the right and the left, the right and the left and having them start hopping sooner, having them start working on balance, having them actually count out in their heads, how many, how many seconds can they stand on one foot versus the other? Those things actually make a big difference. And I have to believe that is going to translate to better function later on. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, we will hopefully get into um, looking at function and not just do we have a foot that looks good? Does it plant? Does it have X amount of dorsiflexion and eversion? Did they actually have a relapse? All that stuff. Really, in the end, we're living. We're living human beings and we we need to be able to function. Like, are we able to do all the things? And I think having these children participate early in, you know, I'm a huge fan of like gymnastics, martial arts, ballet, dance, all of these things, all of the, I always tell prenatal patients, all the things that you think your child is never going to do are the things that I'm going to absolutely push you to have them do, because that is just going to make them stronger. It's going to make them have better function. And I believe it's probably going to decrease their chance of relapse. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, that's all such good information and I'm on you know like on the same wavelength with so much of what you said and I think that's an interesting part about the pediatric treating the pediatric population is you're not just treating the patient in front of you the baby the five-year-old you're treating the future adult right and it's hard because if you're if you're treatment you know if your specialty is peds Mm -hmm. and I struggle with this with my own son because my son is a pediatric patient. So when I ask his amazing pediatric rheumatologist, which I love her, um, what is this is going to look like when he's 30? She can't really honestly answer that because yeah. she can see 30 year old patients. And that's what's challenging with little children is being able to predict what are they going to do? What are they going to look like? I mean, I'll tell you, I've seen x-rays of patients that before I walk in the room, I'm thinking they're they're not look gonna look good, they're gonna they're gonna have pain in, in this foot and then that's the foot they don't have pain in, you know, they they're totally fine. So I I don't think we know I used to have an attending that says we don't treat x rays, we treat patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um and and I think that's what's um also really exciting, I think, for the Clubfa community. It's exciting to know that there are things that we can do to improve yeah function. Um, and I believe even in all, in all cluffy, I believe physical therapy and strengthening are important. It's almost more important in the atypical. Um, obviously you have to have the muscles and you have to have a limb and you have to have all these things to work. But if you do have that, it's really important to continue that. And you, to your point of, you know, a five, that's a magical age that we just came up with. I mean, does it, the anatomy doesn't change at that, at that age. Um, and so I try to, you know, as I look now, I try to gear up my parents. Once we get to about two, 
Mm-hmm. And three, I, th- I think once the child starts walking and they're looking really good and they're having good function, I start thinking, okay, what is our exit plan here? What, you know, what are we looking at? Like I start feeling out parents because I also am not a dictator. So, you know, some parents want to brace and bracing as soon as possible. Some parents don't ever want to brace, stop bracing, you know? And so, um, I believe uh-huh. the joint effort and, yeah. um, it's a joint, mm-hmm. it's, it's you know, parents come to me and, and ask me an opinion. I'm going to give it to you. And then I'm going to ask you, what do you want to do? Mm. It's not just me. It's not my, I'm not the one that's going to be in your home when you're 20 and 30 years old. What, what, what do you want to do? What can you do too? We have to be realistic yeah. as providers. You know, yeah. reason I started using that unilateral brace isn't because that was part of my training. You know, part of me thought Ponzetti <laughs> would roll over in his grave um, if he knew. And I still really firmly believe that there, I still firmly believe that the bar is really, really important and an important part. And I believe that children need to do it until they're strong enough. But I have some parents who just are not going to do it. And yeah. I can either be, um, I was faced with either abandoning my patient when they are unable to advocate for themselves and they are my patient Mm. or I can express what I think is appropriate and then say, okay, well, we can try it. And if we are not thriving, we need to rethink this. Mm-hmm. And you understand that by taking this this route, we might we might end up needing casting. We might have a relapse. We might have this, you know. And and yeah. you know, some of the kids are doing great, and some of them are not are not candidates. And so I think you have to stay open to mm-hmm. understanding what the family is capable of doing and what they actually will do because it does me no good to have a parent come in and lie that they're doing it and then they're not and 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 we're not getting anywhere right right I definitely think that's where it uh that relationship between the doctor and the family has become so important like you are treating the patient but it's the parents who are the ones that are making the decisions and that's the hard part so you have to be open and realistic to what is going to work for families. Like we're at the end of, you know, I mean, right. We're, you know, in between we're in, we're four and a half. And so for us, it's like, but we were never really given a plan of like, okay, will she be done it for? Can she be done it? Like it's, it's very hard. And then it feels like as a parent, you're trying without road mapping it. Right. Um, trying to make those decisions based on what information I have does not feel comfortable to me. So I'm like, well, should we do this? Should we, I mean, would I brace forever? No, I'm, I'm ready to be done bracing. Like, right. honestly, I'm ready right. for her to be done bracing. And then, then I asked myself, am I bracing her now, even though she doesn't need it just be to ease my own concern about it. Right. But I don't think there is a clear roadmap for, there isn't a clear answer, like you said. And so then that becomes when you're working with your provider to make those decisions, you know? And let me just say this, you know, in the end, if you are, I have a different perspective about end of bracing. Um, I almost think that end of bracing period is almost more important than your other follow-ups. So if you stop bracing and 
you are going to be followed pretty soon. Like, you know, if I, if I have a patient that anyone that we stop racing, I, I actually follow them really closely after because we can always pivot. You know, it isn't a diff. It did. It did. If you wait a year, hundred percent. In a year, a lot can happen. But mm-hmm. if even wait, I've and this is why I had said COVID changed because some parents had just stopped racing and noticed real mild little tiny things changes that might have occurred that even with just strengthening physical therapy we went back we didn't have to do casting and transfers and all these other things so you know now having learned that I really tell parents if you I like I was telling you I prepare them and that I give the parents the option. Do you want to get a physical therapy evaluation before we stop racing to identify any possible weaknesses and start working on them before we end racing? This does two things. It, if nothing else, it strengthens the child. No one working on any one given part of the body isn't going to get stronger, right? And two, it puts another um, person's eyes and hands on your child so that if you did lose some flexibility or some gait pattern changes, and by that I mean walking um, changes, you have more than one person that can say, yes, this is not what, where we're at. And so what do we do about it? Do we do, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't know. One of the other things that I I are very, it's very difficult and why I've worked with Dr. Dobbs and other providers in when relapse does occur is that I don't, I don't think any one person knows exactly what needs to happen. It, and, and, um, so I'm happy for someone to have a second opinion and say, this is what I think. And, or this is what I think we should do. Because once we do, something more invasive than cast. We can't take that back. And, um, and that's not to say that children who have had to be out of anterior transfers don't do amazing because they have, I've, I have a lot, a lot, a lot of parents that have come to me as second opinions and, um, have, I've, I've worked with Dr. Jobs together and we've corrected them and, and they've done really great and they're strong. Those are really, really important physical therapy patients. They need to have physical therapy after to really strengthen. So the children in general do really well without so much surgery. Um, I'm, I'm very careful about, about you know, how much surgery is done. I believe there's a lot that can be done with casting. Um, of course, you're going to have your very complicated patients and those fall outside of those, mm-hmm. of what I'm saying. Right. Um, but the majority of pa- patients can do really well with really good serial casting and posterior release and, you know, a tendon transfer, maybe very small ancillary procedures. But, um, because whatever we do will have some some kind of impact later and so we have to when I'm thinking and looking at these patients I have to think what there's pros and cons to both you know you you're gonna get you might gain some flexibility but you might lose some function and so you have to really be able to make those decisions and and I have no problem getting someone else's opinion on involved in that 
Um, mm -hmm. And luckily, it's not really many. So um, it's not many of my patients that I'm telling to, to do this. Um, and, and, and I feel better about that, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, to yeah. make sure that we're all kind of on the same page about what needs to happen moving forward. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so important to keep that individual piece moving forward and thinking about long term and then, you know, always being open to other opinions and other people having hands on feet. I just, I think it's yeah. great. I, ha I have to, in treating clubfoot, I have to have that because, you know, my scope is foot and ankle. And so I do have many other children in my practice that have knee and hip and all kinds of other things. So I, I have to work as a group, you know, we need to have other people checking them out, making sure their other joints are doing good and, and, um, and th there's just nothing wrong with that. There's nothing yeah. wrong with yeah. having a group of providers coming together and decide, you know, t thinking and bouncing ideas. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, it doesn't have to be an aggressive situation. I mean, I've had really lovely relationships with um, other providers and um, doctors. Zions is one of them that unfortunately retired and I miss him a lot because we we were able to really talk about patients and we both felt the same way about hey if we need to bring other people let's bring them yeah so I just so enjoy your perspective and I just appreciate you coming on today to talk about all of the things and I think so much of what you've said has really resonated with me um and I think I'm just so appreciative of you spending your time with us today. And I always like to close out by asking about a standout moment. Like if there's some sort of moment that in your work, I mean, at this point, you've treated a lot of club fight kids. So I'm sure you have a lot of moments, but it could really just be anything on on your path of something that really stands out to you as in, in your memory. Oh my goodness. I, I, uh, I have so many, I love my patients and their families so very much. So, um, every video that I get of their first steps are always just amazing. Um, but I think my time with Ponsetti is probably the most standout. I absolutely just, had an amazing experience and I was so fortunate and he and I both spoke Spanish so I speak Spanish you know um and so it was just so fun to to share culture and and just meet him at the end of his time here on earth where he was just so willing to just share I mean that 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 is well, who he was, was being a person who just wanted to share the method and also just invite anyone. And, and he had a way of making you feel so special. And, um, but my time with Dr. Ponsetti was just one of my favorite things in life. And I have a little video of him when he was telling me a joke and I like often will play it and just hearing him laugh. I'm like, gosh, I just, yeah. I wish I could go back. Yeah. Yeah. That seems, 
very special. Anybody who really got to have some sort of substantial relationship with them, with Dr. Ponsetti, I always am um, a little envious of because he just <laughs> like, I've never heard, you know, um, nothing but I've heard nothing but positive things about him and what he did for this community. Not yeah. to say he was nice all the time. I've also heard some. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say he's feisty. He, he, he was, was feisty, feisty for sure. He was feisty, he, he was feisty sure. and he, he, he believed in what he believed and it was hard to, to change that. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, and there are things I, I don't agree on, you know, um, like I said, the physical therapy aspect, um, the, the, not every kid, you know, he believed, you know, certain, certain things that he believed in, but overall he was just a really gracious and lovely mm-hmm. person and yeah. he really cared about his patient. Yeah. Yeah. He really cared about the follow-up. I, I really respect that he wanted to know what was happening. He wanted to see, you know, yeah. what was happening. And now it's kind of our, our, responsibility to, to, to kind of look and see, okay, now what can we decipher from what he had? He came up with treatment. Now we have to move forward and figure out how can we improve on that? Yeah. I love that. Well, if someone listening is in your area and looking for a clubfoot provider or just more information, where could they, where would they be able to contact you and your team? So we're in Ladera Ranch, California, at Southern California Foot and Ankle Specialist. Okay. And um, our number is 949-364-9255. And um, they can, you know, just call and and, and get in. Um, Courtney is the clubfoot specialist in my clinic, and she would, you know, get back to you. Our website also has a little area that you can send an email and um and get in contact with we're pretty easy to look up and get in contact with so yeah yeah I think your website's great it has it has like a clubfoot specific part for yeah we're going to be working on trying to improve some of that um some some of that stuff but yeah we it was really important to us to have parents kind of have something to look Mm -hmm. at Well, I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for being here today. I like so appreciate your time and just your expertise. And I can just tell how you said that Dr. Ponsetti really cared about their patients. And I can tell that you do too. And I am so appreciative of that as a parent and just as part of the community at large. Like there's something, um, it's just something non-tangible that you can't exactly explain to people. Um, but it's just like a feeling of when you meet somebody who is just passionate about it as it is, not um, for just their feeling about it. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on today and talking to us. I learned so much. And so I'm so appreciative of that too. So well, thank you. I, I always say, you know, I am so grateful um, for what I do. I love what I do. And I, I just, I'm, I, I'm just as filled as my patients are. I love these little kids and their families and, um, it's just wonderful. I want to thank Dr. Rodriguez for being a guest today. As I said, I learned so much from our conversation and I'm sure that you guys will learn so much as well. I'm truly grateful for the 
for her taking the time to be with us today and just also a huge thank you for all that she does for the Clubfoot community at large. As always, thanks for listening, and if you found this episode helpful and you liked it, please share with anyone you think would be interested in it. And if you need to get in contact with me, please do so at my website, maureenhoff.com, or through my Instagram account at Clubfoot Chronicles Mom. Until next time.